This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Spring into pre-emergent weed control action for canola and pulse crops with Edge Microactive. Powerful Group 3 action takes out the broadest assortment of grass and broadleaf weeds, including kochia, wild buckwheat, and barnyard grass, before they can take over your crop. Use Edge Microactive as a part of your herbicide layering program to help maximize yields today and manage resistance tomorrow. Go to ca.gowanco.com for details. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dylan Shirley, and I'll be your host for this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by Aiden Sandin. He is a master's student at the University of Saskatchewan within the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics, supervised by Dr. Richard Gray. Aiden, welcome to Inputs. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me. And we are very happy to have you today after uh, your great talk at the Top Crop Summit. And we thought it'd be a good idea to bring you on to as our second uh, participant in our graduate student showcase. So before we go into uh, what you've been up to over the last couple of years, uh, I first just want to ask um, what brought you to uh, studying at the University of Saskatchewan and what went through your brain to kind of go and pursue uh, further education after your first degree? Right. So um, I guess to start, uh, I'm originally from a, uh, uh, a grain and cattle farm in Crake, Saskatchewan here. So um, we're, we're right between Regina and Saskatoon. So those were kind of the, uh, the two choices. Um, and at the time, my brother was, was in his third year of an agribusiness degree uh, in Saskatoon. So it made the most sense to, to follow him up there and, and kind of learn the ropes from him. Um, I wanted to kind of carve out my own path. So I, uh, I enrolled in commerce originally, thinking I would be an accountant. That was kind of the, the plan at the time. I did, however, spend a lot of time in the, in the egg building and at the uh, extracurricular activities the agros hosted and whatnot. So um, it felt a lot more like home after that first year than, than the College of Commerce. So I, uh, I switched into a degree of agribusiness after my first year. And that's, um, that's kind of the rest is history, I guess you say. Um, and I, I finished up with that degree in 2019. Um, and in terms of grad school, it, it had never really entered my, my brain until the night of our graduation banquet um, in January. I was chatting with one of my professors um, kind of about what my plans were after uh, graduation. And at that time, I had a summer job lined up with BASF, um, but really didn't have any firm plans after that. And he suggested looking into, into grad school. Um, and that kind of uh, planted the seed in my head. Um, so I, I looked into it. I applied kind of out of the blue. I, I didn't know what, what projects were available, what supervisors were looking to take on grad students. Um, so it was kind of just a random throw my hat in the ring kind of thing. Um, and I heard back from my current supervisor, Dr. Richard Gray, about a, uh, a yield gap project looking at uh, the yield gap for wheat in Western Canada. And um, for me, it was, it was easy to, to jump on board with that. Um, you know, it was being from a farm in Saskatchewan where we grow a lot of wheat, it was really relevant and uh, it was really interesting. And I think it, you know, it, it, it kind of had a, a global implication to it as well. So it was, it was something that it was very easy to, uh, to go on board with. So 
Right. Cause it, it always kind of helps when you have uh, a more rooted background in what you're researching. And it's not just something perhaps completely theoretical or something completely outside of what you're used to. You know, this is something that you grew up um, with, right. you know, being in from uh, central Saskatchewan. So yeah. I like how you already jumped into uh, what you're kind of already looking at in, in terms of yield gap within wheat and in Western Canada. Um, and two kind of terms that you kind of throw around quite a bit uh, from your thesis already is yield potential and exploitable yield. Could you go over uh, what those both those terms mean and how they're kind of related to each other? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess to start the, the yield gap, um, it's really simply defined as this difference between potential yield and actual yields. And potential yield is, I, I call it this the, the theoretical yield of a crop um, that's free from limitations of nutrients, water, and, and free from the, the yield reductions of, of pests, disease, weeds, things like that. So it's kind of, um, you know, this, the yield that we would expect from a crop under perfect conditions. Um, and the only things that really influence yield potential are uh, the environment that the crop's grown in, as well as um, some of the physical characteristics of the variety, like maturity date and, and things like that. So yield potential is kind of the, the theoretical ceiling that, um, that we would expect if everything was perfect. Um, an exploitable yield is essentially this more realistic um, measure, this more realistic benchmark we don't expect that the majority of producers will reach yield potential. Um, you know, it's, it's, it takes perfect conditions, perfect management. Um, and at that level, it's really not economic, economical to, you know, to, to apply inputs to hit that, uh, that yield potential mark. So exploitable yield is calculated as 80% of potential yield. And it, just, it does just that. It, it, it wants to capture the realistic uh, benchmark we expect producers could reach. Um, one of the big criticisms of exploitable yield is that uh, it doesn't include any economic measures um, in its calculation. It's just calculated as 80% of potential yield. And so you know, because of that, that's really what we're trying to do uh, here with my research is, is to determine what is the economically optimal rate um, for inputs that influence yield? And how does this economically optimal rate compare to, um, to where producers currently are operating for both input use and, uh, and yields? Right. And I just kind of want to go back potentially. So um, you talk about getting the yield potential and that the perfect conditions have to be there to kind of reach that. Um, and you might mention it slightly already, but what kind of main drivers cause yield gap for uh, Canadian wheat growers? Right. So there's, there's, there's a multitude of factors um, that drive the yield gap, uh, you know, and, and there's, there's things that the producer is in control of and there's things that they're not in control of. And oftentimes um, these two groups of factors are interconnected. Um, and, and that's where it gets to be really challenging to kind of hone in on a particular um, driver. Uh, one of the recurring factors uh, that contributes to the yield gap globally, and we expect it will in Western Canada as well, is nutrient deficiencies, and specifically that of nitrogen. Um, 
And, and just for example, you know, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, nutrient deficiencies are a huge driver of, of yield gaps there. Um, but when we start to talk about these interconnections, we see that there's, you know, there's political and socioeconomic factors that, that kind of constrain producers to not be able to use uh, more fertilizers. We think about a place like Australia, which is uh, very similar to, to Western Canada in terms of dry land farming. Um, we see quite the opposite. We, we assume that producers have all the access to these inputs, um, but they're really, they're constrained by weather uh, variability. They, they really don't know what the, uh, what the upcoming season will hold in terms of uh, precipitation and, and temperature and things like that. Um, and that ultimately leads to a big risk factor that, that uh, constrains producers below maybe where the, the yield potential uh, input usage would be. Um, beyond focusing on fertilizer inputs, which is kind of the bulk of what uh, I'm doing with my research, um, there's also a couple other interesting factors that we've kind of noticed um, within Western Canada. And, you know, that uh, a big one is variety use. Um, I don't know how many spring wheat varieties there are on the market today, but um, even within a small area of Saskatchewan, we see quite a range of, of varieties being used for spring wheat. And, uh, you know, there are varieties that are a couple years old and there's varieties that are being used that are, that are 40 and 50 years old. So um, that holds genetic potential in itself, those varieties um, th that will constrain yield below potential. Uh, some of the management factors as well uh, include things like seeding date um, and crop rotation is a big one where, um, you know, there is, there's potential that is, is maybe not being reached uh, just based on uh, some of those management factors. So, Right. Thank you for going over uh, a wonderful kind of example of not only that this is a, a Canadian agricultural and agroecosystem issue, but it's quite relatable to what's happening across the world. So in terms of where your thesis is going, what um, was the main objective going into your research when you started? So the, the main objective of my thesis, um, you know, has been to determine what the economic optimal allocation of nitrogen fertilizer use is. And, um, you know, you, you could translate this probably into a couple other variable inputs, but for now we're really focused on nitrogen. It's a, it's a major driver of yields. Um, and so that's been our focus. And basically what, what we want to look at is um, how the optimal level of nitrogen relates um, to where producers are actually using and how that relates to the exploitable yield gap. Um, so, you know, if we find that producers are not optimizing nitrogen, um, that may be a, a contributing factor of why we're not reaching that, that 80% of yield potential. So. For sure. And, and you guys took a pretty fantastic approach at looking at this. Um, I'm going to introduce a term that for a lot of people, they don't want to hear this anymore, but use a quadratic formula to kind of look at um, kind of looking at your, your objective and your, and trying to answer what's going on here. So what kind of variables and factors did you consider and put into this formula uh, to get a better idea of what's happening? Right. So, um, you know, when we began looking at the kind of yieldless response literature, um, we began to notice that there's a few common functions that are being used. And, and one of the um, dominant ones 
from agronomy studies is these plateau functions. Um, and, and they basically operate where an input uh, is used and it increases yield up to a point. Um, and then that input no longer contributes to yield and yield just kind of levels off. And that's that plateau. Um, and one of the challenges we've had here is, is our data set is it, there's a lot of heterogeneity, um, which is kind of a fancy word for saying that there's, there's a lot of differences um, you know, between the, the soil and the climate uh, that we're looking at for all of these different um, yield responses at the field level. So the thing that we liked about the quadratic is it could, it could do a good job of handling all of these um, different factors, uh, you know, really productive fields, fields that uh, are not on great soils, fields that received a ton of rainfall, some that didn't. And, and so it allowed us to handle um, kind of a variation. And we were really interested in a couple of variables like rainfall, for example, where, you know, a bit of rain is good, a bit more rain is better, a bit more rain um, is actually detrimental to yield. And, you know, you, you begin to, to lose yield and quality if you get too much, um, especially in a cereal crop. And so we wanted to kind of capture that, that curvature. Um, similar to seeding date where, you know, we have producers that are in the field really early and, and producers that are really late and, and some that are in the middle. So we wanted to kind of capture how yield uh, changes kind of over um, these different ranges. And then with nitrogen, uh, we were kind of surprised to see, but uh, using a scatter plot where we, we plotted yield and nitrogen use, you know, we did see that um, you know, yield was increasing to about 130 pounds of nitrogen an acre. And then as we got beyond that, um, and producers were really trying to push yield by, by pushing nitrogen rates, we actually seen um, yield drastically decrease. And it probably follows uh, along with the rainfall uh, expectation where, you know, a bigger crop is not always better. So uh, we felt that the quadratic uh, form was, was a good starting point for now. Ready to gear up? Farm Credit Canada Ag Expert wants you to drive away in a new Polaris Ranger side-by-side. -side. Enter the Gear Up contest when you sign up for Ag Expert Accounting or Ag Expert Field. It's free. This is your chance to get amazing farm management software and enter to win a 2022 Polaris Ranger Premium. Hurry, the Gear Up with Ag Expert contest deadline is March 31st. Learn more at agexpert.ca slash gearup. Right. And it sounds like you're not only just looking at rainfall, but you're trying to introduce a bunch of other factors. And it sounds like just from listening that you you had to have a pretty robust data set. So uh, how did you go about acquiring such a, a vast you know, bunch of numbers with different factors and variables that you were able to pick and choose and apply them into this quadratic formula? Right. So, yeah. Um... From chatting with you know my supervisor and and, and some other uh, grad students in our department, a lot of issues that they have is a lack of data. And in the case of this research, you know I think we had the opposite, which is a very fortunate problem to have. And and so we were able to access uh, Saskatchewan crop insurance management data um, from a period of 2010 to 2019 for all of Saskatchewan. And and so um, you know we had access to. Uh, the yield of a particular field at the quarter section level, uh, the yield 
inputs that were used, crop variety, seeding date, um, any chemical applications, fungicide. We also had kind of a, you know, a historical track record of each field. So we could really kind of begin to look at things like crop rotation and how that influences it. Um, we were able to, to get some precipitation data at the RM level from the Saskatchewan crop reports, um, which, you know, was, was at a level that was pretty accurate as well. So um, all in all, we had a, really a, a very exciting data set that is, is pretty much unheard of um, in yield gap studies to this date. So, Well, it's fantastic to hear that you're able to kind of pull all this valuable information from different resources. And from what I understand, you, you focus in on one specific area in Western Saskatchewan, and that's uh, dubbed risk zone 16. Could you kind of describe, uh, I guess, the process of choosing this area and maybe some specific conditions uh, that are related to uh, risk zone 16? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, crop insurance has broken the, the province into 23 risk zones um, based on a bit of soil characteristics, some climate and, and uh, historical yields. And the reason that we went with risk zone 16 to start out was um, it matches up really well with a buffer zone that agriculture and agri-food Canada is using to simulate yield potential that I discussed earlier. And so we wanted to really be able to, to compare apples to apples in terms of a kind of a geospatial space um, focusing on risk zone 16. So that was why we started there. Um, a little bit about that zone in particular, it's it's kind of on the edge of the uh, dark brown soil zone. It, a lot of the, the zone is in the brown. Um, and we we get a pretty uh, pretty good mix of uh, cereal crops, canola and pulse crops as well. So that was, you know, that was a benefit as well of risk zone 16 was to get um, kind of those three distinctive crop groups uh, showing up in the data set. Um, but it was, you know, the decision to choose that zone was was mostly off of just matching up well with the AFC uh, buffer zone. So, well, that's very fortuitous that uh, one of the I guess many risk zones quite lined up quite nicely to that buffer zone. So, going into the formula itself, uh, what kind of limitations uh, were you did you anticipate that this formula could go with, or uh, kind of assumptions that you had to take in consideration when putting uh, together? the formula? Um, yeah, so I, I guess to start with some limitations, I mean, you know, we, we had to focus on one input to start, which is somewhat of a partial approach. Um, you know, we know that there's a lot of factors that are going to influence uh, the yield gap, um, but we needed to kind of break it down uh, to start because we had so much data and, and um, we didn't want to get too ambitious at the start and, and kind of get in over our skis to say so. Um, it, you know, that I put that as a limitation that we're only focusing on nitrogen right now. Um, but I think it's, it's important to, to note that so that, you know, our results, uh, we don't go crazy with them. Uh, and, you know, one of the challenges with fertilizer that we don't have access to in terms of data is uh, residual fertilizer that's in the soil from the previous year. And so um, the rates that were, you know, looking at in terms of our results, uh, they don't account for, you know, if a field has half of that nitrogen sitting there already. So it, it may look like we're overestimating things, but um, it's, it's certainly a limitation we kind of have to deal with. 
in terms of assumptions, uh, there's definitely a few we had to make that coming from a farm I know are probably not true necessarily, but, um, you know, one of the, the big ones is we assume that the goal of the farmer is to maximize profits, which I don't think is, you know, that's not a, uh, we're not stretching there. Um, but along with that, you know, we had to assume that every farmer is receiving the same price for their grain at the end of the year. They're selling the same uh, quality of wheat. Every farmer has the same quality and they're all paying the same for that nitrogen in the spring. And, you know, we know that that's maybe not true, especially a year like this where we've seen fertilizer prices go, you know, kind of nuts. Um, we also, we didn't account for any risk. Um, and that's a big one when we, when we think about uh, inputs is, well, you know, just production in general, especially on dryland farming is, is what role does risk play? And we haven't uh, included it at all in this analysis so far. We're kind of just assuming that everybody's risk neutral. So uh, that's kind of, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to know that we can't, can't do everything. Um, and so we need to kind of note uh, the limitations and, and assumptions we make. So that's interesting. Could you go a little bit further on that risk neutral idea? Well, I, you know, I think in terms of, of looking at uh, fertilizer, if we think about someone that's risk neutral versus someone that is maybe risk seeking, um, you know, they may want to to try to capture additional yield that they think is, is going to be out there in the upcoming season. You know, a year like this, um, where we maybe had a lot of snowfall, you know, and you have to decide how much fertilizer you're going to put down in the spring. Um, a, a risk-seeking producer might really be optimistic about the upcoming year and, and, and really try to push that yield. Um, and, you know, it, it's probably more so that producers are maybe a little risk-averse after coming off of such a dry year last year where guys are cutting back on rates, um, especially with the price. So risk is, is certainly something that, um, you know, influences decisions. And I think that... Um, Moving forward, that's going to be a question that we're going to have to have with producers is, you know, how do you approach uh, input use in terms of risk? So it's certainly uh, something that will come after this, I guess. For sure. And I guess going back to uh, the formula at hand here, uh, what are some of the results or early trends that you're uh, you're taking from uh, the formula? Right. So, um, you know, our early results suggest that producers um, in risk zone 16 are on average under applying nitrogen um, compared to what we consider to be optimal. So given that there appears to be um, an exploitable yield gap uh, with respect to nitrogen use for wheat production in that risk zone there, you know, and, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the, uh, you know, the drivers of yield gaps are often interconnected. And so we wanted to try to capture some of these uh, connection points, I guess you could say. Um, and, and so what we've done is we've conditioned uh, the response of nitrogen um, by soil and by previous crop. And, and what we found is that um, in the majority of soils, producers are under applying nitrogen. On the poorer soils, we find that they actually uh, are over applying nitrogen from what we consider to be optimal. And just on average, uh, looking at the data set, we see the highest amount of nitrogen being put down on these poorer soils. And so, um, you know, that leads to a question of, of if producers are trying to respond to these poorer soils by, you know, thinking maybe there's not 
as much residual being carried year to year. Maybe they don't, uh, it's not as available within the, the growing season. So they're, they're applying more rates. It's, it's something that uh, we're going to have to, to investigate further. Uh, the, the previous crop is, a, is another interesting interconnection there. And, and so what we found there was, um, you know, the biggest exploitable yield gap was following a pulse crop. And so we found that producers were, were applying the lowest amount of nitrogen after a pulse crop. Um, and that actually had the greatest, uh, the greatest gap um, in exploitable yield. I'm, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly why this is. Um, you know, I, I think that we all kind of expect that there are benefits um, when we add a pulse to our crop rotation. Um, but I, I don't really know if this is something that, uh, you know, residual nitrogen is, is, is increasing the, the availability. Um, maybe there's some moisture at depth. I, it's, it's again, something that, you know, I think um, once we're, we're solid on these results, we'll have to investigate further. For sure. Well, I mean, just on the onset there, you, you have two pretty cool kind of results, not only just talking about in general, dealing with a poor soil quality. Um, and your nitrogen application, but also just in crop rotation. So in terms of where this is going forward, kind of outstanding questions do you have that you would like to address uh, with this formula or maybe adding in some other variables? And in terms of going a little bit beyond that, uh, where do you think this research should go? Is this going to a point where uh, this formula should be applied to not only the, the buffer zone that Agriculture and Agri-Boots Canada has, but across different growing regions? Or I, I just am interested to, to hearing what where you think this should be uh, going in the future. Right. So I think the, um, as I kind of discussed earlier, um, you know, when we were talking about nitrogen as a, as a common theme globally with yield gap studies, um, you know, we've identified here with some confidence that nitrogen is driving uh, a portion of the yield gap uh, for wheat in Saskatchewan. And so what, what I really want to know is, you know, what, what kind of factors go into deciding what I'm going to apply for nitrogen um, in a given year, you know, what, what goes through the farmer's head. So that's, that's certainly, I think one of the questions that that's on my mind and um, you know, in the States with the yield gap study that's going on there kind of in conjunction with what, uh, agriculture and agri-food Canada have been doing, um, that's the point where they're at now is, is they've, they've estimated the, the yield gap. Now they're sitting down with producers. They're, they're launching surveys to kind of um, uncover some of these decisions that lead um, into these factors that ultimately drive the yield gap. Um, in terms of, you know, applying this method outward, I think for sure it's, um, it's something that is, is going to be beneficial um, you know, not only across area, but um, across inputs. Um, the challenge is, is that, you know, they, uh, I think that these drivers of the yield gap are really location dependent. And, um, you know, even between Alberta and Saskatchewan, we see differences with climate, um, soils. So it's, it, it's uh, we have to upscale for sure, um, but we just have to be careful about it, I think. And, and it seems like, you know, with the, the global yield gap atlas approach that um, is kind of the spearhead of this, this whole uh, area of research, you know, they, they, they have good infrastructure in terms to kind of upscale this and, and tackle Western Canada 
and really the, the rest of the world. So, well, that sounds pretty optimistic just going forward and just hearing how uh, th- there's a potential that this could be applied, but it just, you know, more hands on deck, more data, more kind of looking into local locality and regions to kind of get at this yield gap um, uh, explanation and trying to provide a good tool for our Canadian uh, producers. So uh, thank you, Aiden, for joining me today. Where can people contact you or where can they find you if they want to know more about the research that you're up to? Um, for sure. So I, uh, the best way to contact me is probably through email. My email is just aidensandon at gmail.com. Um, and that's, that's probably the best way uh, to get a hold of me. If you have any thoughts or, or questions or comments, you know, I'm, I'm completely open. My ears are, are wide open at this point in my research uh, to, to look at other things. And, um, you know, I've been staring at this problem for about two years, so I kind of have tunnel vision. So if there's, you know, any, any feedback is really appreciated. So. Well, fantastic. And uh, again, thanks Aiden for joining us on inputs. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, Dylan. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.